Christian Silvestri, and this is the Safety Frontiers podcast. Episode 6, The Mystifying Leadership in Behaviour Change. In our last episode, David Pope and I discussed the problem with psychology and safety. We shared examples in our respective safety journeys through the years where we've come across many psychology-based programs and what we have learned along the way. In this episode, I'm joined by Kerry Smith. He has worked as a safety manager for 25 years in a wide range of industries, such as mining, manufacturing and construction. Welcome to the Safety Frontiers podcast, Kerry. Thanks, Christian. It's going to be really good to be taking part. So tell us a bit about your career so far and the interest in the topic. I think in that 25 years, I would have investigated more than 100 workplace incidents. When I started 25 years ago, it was easy in a way because we always found some sort of hazard that hadn't need to be controlled or there was some deficiency in a management system that we needed to address. So corrective actions were pretty easy to find and they tended to focus either on hazards or system improvements that we needed to make. But I guess over time, the work environment got a lot safer, the systems got a lot tighter and they'd been implemented fully, people had been fully trained. And we still seem to be having some of the same events that we were having when I started in safety. And I started to get more and more intrigued about people's behaviour I'm really trying to understand, you know, why do people do what they do? And I think if you're going to be an effective leader, you realise that behaviour has a lot to do with incidents that occur and we need to look at behaviour to look at what we can do to prevent those incidents. So I've been involved in leading the implementation of behavioural programs in various roles that I've held over the years. And so I'm interested in sharing some of my experiences, but also learning some more on what else we could do to make it better. Okay. Thanks, Kerry. So in previous episodes, we have pointed out that traditional safety seems to only ever use three approaches. I guess this confirms what you've seen, Kerry. And those three approaches are fix the environment by eliminating the hazard. It's a good thing to do. Improve the system by increasing paperwork, fortifying risk management, and or expanding or increasing consultation. That's also a good thing to do. And the third thing is to make safety more conscious by reinforcing the importance of safety through conversations in order to entice more care, you know, more commitment, deeper trust, healthier relationships, or developing a sense of belonging. So these three approaches got us to where we are and are useful to keep, but they are struggling to get us any further. What's your view on this, Kerry? I hear that a lot when I talk to other safety people that I know within the company and and in in other companies and also when I talk to some of the managers that I work with. And we can't do without those three approaches, but organisations struggle to improve their safety performance and increasing care, trust, etc. is not proving to be the solution that a lot of people thought it might be. It's a good thing to have in the workplace, but it just doesn't translate into a significant injury reduction. That's been what I've found in my career so far. And if you think about the number of workplace fatalities in Australia confirms that for me, 
They've been basically stagnating since about 2013. And in America, they've actually been increasing in that period by about 20% during that same period. So that really confirms for me that there's more that we need to do outside of those things. Okay, so yeah, I always say this, and I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm an engineer, so I tend to go where the evidence is. And for me, data doesn't lie. It just gets interpreted differently depending on the agenda. We all know we do more of the three approaches today and we do them better than ever before, yet the data is not showing improvement. In Australia, it's not showing improvement. In the US, there's a deterioration. Some people say that the bureaucracy that comes with safety is the issue. I don't disagree, but that's not all we've been doing for the last 40 years. We've been doing the safety is a deliberate choice thing as well. Yet people advocate we should just continue to do more of the same do nothing new and expect things to change. It's funny how some people think that, you know, more of the same will bring a different outcome. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Keep doing the same thing and expect a different result? It is. We think there is a piece missing, a big piece, fundamental to being human. We've been using the discoveries of brain science to help reduce injury significantly without blame or fault by helping people understand how inattention comes about and what can be done about it. Of course, this is done through behaviour change, or to be more precise, by getting people to upgrade their skills and habits to safer one, that to shift to ones that are more attention-enhancing, if you like. And leadership plays a crucial role in this process. So today, we'll be exploring the essential aspects of leadership that are most important to achieving behaviour change. So Kerry, you worked in a number of industries, what do organisations that you've worked for done well? Uh, most organisations have eliminated many hazards and they have a big focus on hazard identification and, and repairing those things. They've trained their workforce really well. Most of them have very good safety management systems in place and believe they deal well with behaviour because of all the conversations that they might have when they're in the field and, you know, they talk about the importance of safety. Yet they're still having incidents and even quite serious ones sometimes. And they ask, what else is there? That's a, that's a good question because I get that question too. I always answer it with a question of my own. What assumptions are you making about behaviour that is limiting your ability to reduce incidents further? So have you got any ideas on what that might be, Kerry? From my perspective, it's the assumption that all behaviour is conscious or can be made to be conscious if there's enough care, trust, healthier relationships, etc. That's kind of what we found as well. Uh, look, brain science has proven this assumption to be correct, but only for 5% of behaviour. Most things we do, we have done many times before, so there is an element of automation that goes with it. But it feels like we decided in the moment when the behaviour actually originated in the back of our minds a little earlier. Mm, that's interesting. So, Christian, is brain science saying care, trust, healthier relationships are not worth having? On the contrary, they are good to have because they open the lines of communication, which helps with conscious behaviour, and that comes into play when things are new, novel or different. 
But we can't get away from the fact that most of what we do, we have done plenty of times before. I hear the mantra, safety is a deliberate choice. Yet when I've done investigations and I talk to people, you hear comments like, I just wasn't thinking about what I was doing. And even people considered very safety conscious, they'll have an incident and they'll, they'll say that very statement to me. I've sort of heard that as well. Look, there's plenty of science on this. And by science, we mean actual real-time measurement of what's going on in your brain as you're doing something. And what it shows is that people run off scripts for behavior that has been wired in through repetition, so through specific neural networks. We are biologically wired to do things in an automated fashion, especially if we have done them often before, which is about 95% of what we do. So making safety more conscious is like trying to reverse engineer our biology, something that's going to be pretty hard to do, I imagine. Exactly. So what we've tried to do by learning about brain science is to try and find out, to go with biology rather than against it. We need to accept what we have done up until now has got us to where we are. And these things are useful to keep. We're not advocating for them to be thrown out but they are not going to get us any further. So what do you think we're missing in safety? If we've been targeting the conscious mind probably 40 years or so and we're still not there, then my guess is we need to start targeting the subconscious mind. That's what we think as well. We need to start influencing the drivers of human behaviour that originate in the subconscious so that we can get them to work for us automatically when it comes to safety. So I guess, you know, a key question is how does leadership help to influence the subconscious mind? Well, first we need a different approach uh, to influence the subconscious that works alongside the approaches we have used traditionally. So, you know, when you step back, the conscious mind works very differently to the subconscious mind. So you need a different way in order to influence it. So based on brain science, what we do is we try to improve people's ability to stay attentive by teaching three foundations. The first one is how common inattention is every day. Now, the second one is how to detect it and be on guard against it, especially the things that cause inattention. And the third one is to give people some quick win skills and habits that provide extra protection when inattention is present. Because often it will be there without us even knowing about it. So teaching people is one thing. Getting them to do it when it counts is quite another. And without leadership, what we have found is there is no sustainable behaviour change. Okay, so how do you do leadership in behavioural programs? Well, we use a three-step process, which was first proposed to me by a community elder a few years ago. And it's a fairly simple three-step process. The first step is know the way. The second step is show the way, and the third step is go the way. That sounds like a good logical approach, but I feel like I've seen these steps or similar ones before in other leadership programs. You probably have. Leadership has been around for a long time since people started working together. Okay, so take us through it. What's know the way about? Know the way is about understanding where human behaviour comes from. 
the better we understand it, the more effective we can help change it. But just about all safety leadership programs I have seen only ever target conscious decision-making. So in other words, they try to enable behaviour change by using the safety is a deliberate choice mantra. Yeah. And because of the research we did in brain science, we knew that influencing the conscious mind was good. Now, every time you can influence the conscious mind, you know, that's a good thing. But it's not enough to prevent many incidents. And it's not really very effective at influencing inattention. Look, but irrespective of what brain science discovered, for most people, behavior feels like an in-the-moment conscious decision. Unfortunately, how it feels is just how it feels. It isn't always the way it actually comes about. Brain science shows the vast majority of our behavior has already been determined before it hits our prefrontal cortex, where conscious decisions are made. So that's why just targeting the conscious mind is not enough. Correct. Change happens in people's heads, but it doesn't just happen in the conscious mind. It can also happen in the subconscious mind. The bottom line is we need a whole of brain approach to behavior change. So know the way is important because we need to understand all the drivers of human behavior, not just the conscious ones, if we want to influence behavior in a meaningful way. That's a good way of putting it. Unless we have a complete understanding of what drives behavior and a way to influence all the bits, the conscious and the subconscious, then we're wasting our limited resources in our view. So in Know the Way, the aim is to get leaders to appreciate that when we deal with or think that all behavior is conscious, we're only really dealing with 5% of the problem and we're leaving 95% of the potential improvement unrealized. Well, that's an important part of it. If we persevere with only making safety behavior more conscious, we may be able to get it to 10% or even 20% if we work really hard at it, but that still leaves 80% plus to deal with. To get the best return on investment for collective effort, we need to focus more on the subconscious mind because that is what determines most behavior. And since there is considerable inattention in our existing skills and habits, our focus is to upgrade these to safer ones. That way, we can be automatically safer and have the subconscious mind working for our safety rather than against it. If anyone listening wants to know more about the subconscious mind, inattention and upgrading skills and habits to safer ones, please listen to episode four, The Neuroscience of Inattention. So in other words... Know the way is getting leaders to understand that to change behaviour in any meaningful way, we have to think about the whole of brain approach and that involves skills and habits and these exist in the realm of the subconscious mind. Yeah. So the next step, show the way. What's that all about? Once we know the way, we have a complete picture of what drives human behaviour. The next step is about making progress. One small step in the right direction is better than 100 steps in the wrong direction. Now, we need to get people to start doing it. That's what Show the Way is about. Okay, that sounds interesting. So, you know, how do you actually do that? The best way I can describe it is to share a learning experience we had with a global mining client. There were four mines, all open cut, about the same size, using the same systems and with similar safety cultures. 
even the the GMs were rotated periodically. So it doesn't sound like there's much difference between the sites. Not much difference at all. But when we implemented our program to upgrade people's skills and habits to safer ones, there was significant difference in the results. So in what way were they different? The first site's results were beyond expectations. It reduced total recordable injury frequency rate by almost 90%, even after four years. And remember, you know, what we do is blame-free and fault-free. We just teach people what causes inattention and what they can do about it. The second and third site did pretty well, much like we expected. They reduced total recordable injury frequency rate by 68% and 81% respectively. Well, that sounds like pretty good results. But don't get carried away just yet. The fourth site did not do so well. It only reduced by 24%, even after four years. Okay, so what was the difference between the sites? When when we returned to work out what happened, what we found was that it wasn't senior management commitment. All the sites had that. The GMs for all the sites or one of the management team members, opened every session we presented. It wasn't that the training was any different. The same trainers did every site in the same way, because one of the things we pride ourselves on is consistency. There seemed to be little difference, or no difference between the sites at all at first. Okay, so you've got me intrigued now. What did you eventually find the difference to be? It took us a while to figure it out. I was contemplating what else to look at when I heard Graham Henry, the legendary All Blacks coach, get interviewed. And he was asked what he looked for in potential All Black players. He said he looked for three things. He looked for mindset, so, you know, culture, if you like, skill set, so talent, and grit set, um, a structure for practice. I can't remember what he called it. Grit set is just my name for it. And then he was asked which one was most important. What would you say most people would go for? Well, I would uh, bet most people would think it's mindset. He said many hopefuls have enough mindset and enough skill set, but never get to play for the All Blacks. He said that whether they ended up as an All Black player or not depended mostly on the third one, the ability to make themselves do what they knew they had to do. And then he was asked why grit set was so important. Okay, so has it got anything to do with people's subconscious mind? Well, surprisingly enough, it has. He said, when the game is on the line, making the right play in the right way is not a conscious decision. It's what got wired in during practice. So Graham knew that when it comes to behaviour, even you know something like rugby union, 95% of it is about skills and habits. Well, maybe that's why he was so successful. We can't get people to change a lot unless we take a whole-of-brain approach. What he also said is that people are not good at creating the structures for making themselves practice what they know they need to do. Yeah, if we did, I guess we'd be a lot fitter and we'd eat a lot better or a lot healthier. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe that's why. So you see when you go down the park, you see so many people paying for a personal trainer to help them do things like push-ups or, you know, crunchies or running and they're all things that you could do for free by yourself. So 
What have you seen in your experience? What happens when there is no structure? Well, what we find is people do nothing. And not because they are bad people or don't think that the changes will be useful for them. We need to appreciate that providing facts or information does not make people do what they know they need to do. After all, doctors tell us what to do when our cholesterol is high, but sometimes people have to wait for the first heart attack or for the second heart attack to change what they eat and how much they exercise. Yeah, so providing information for the conscious mind is not enough. Exactly. So when we looked at the four sites with this insight, then the main difference was how much daily practice people did. And I'm guessing the more daily practice, the better the incident reduction? It's not really surprising, is it? So who ensured everyone did the daily practice at the mine sites? Was it the general manager? It wasn't him or her. Okay. What about, so it was given to someone on the management team to drive? No, it wasn't them either. So who? Who did it? What we found was that the most important cog in getting people to practice was a frontline supervisor. And whether they got people to practice or not depended mostly on the structure they had set up for the practice to happen. So those frontline supervisors that were more like personal trainers got people to do more practice and achieved a significantly better result for the site. Well, when you think about it, that makes sense. So now we train frontline supervisors to coach using our methodology. It's one of the things we consider most important. We've been doing it for a few years, and the biggest feedback we get is that frontline supervisors appreciate the responsibility of being an important cog in the process. They want to make a difference. We want them to be personal trainers, not drill sergeants, and be able to ask the right question in the right way to entice people to practice more. So in other words, uh, show the way is about getting leaders, particularly those frontline supervisors, because they're critical to the process, to coach using a whole-of-brain approach, and that will help people identify the skills and habits that they need to improve and get them to practice that change or that habit daily. Yeah. So the next step, go the way. What, what's that all about? After we know the way and show the way, it's time to get on the bike ourselves and go the way with everybody else. So people need to see the leaders doing what they're being asked to do. That's right. We all know that what we do sends a stronger message than what we say. Interestingly enough, when we return to sites that we've done the training in, the most common question we get asked by the workforce is this one. If upgrading skills and habits is so important, why are leaders so bad at it? Why would you think that might be, Gary? I would guess leaders think they don't need to do it as much as the workers because, you know, they don't have incidents at work. Yeah, that's exactly how leaders rationalise it. And someone once pointed out to me that rationalise is more about telling yourself rational lies than anything else. The conscious mind is very good at justifying what the subconscious mind has already decided for us. So what does go the way involve? Go the way is about being the best role model for workers, friends or family members. Leaders that want to lead effectively need to lead by 
you know, the mantra that don't ask anyone else to do anything you're not prepared to do yourself first. After all, we're all human. We all have the same brain with the same functionality. And given so much of what we do is done in an automated fashion, you wouldn't really be setting a good example for others if you always looked at your phone while moving, if trying to encourage others not to. Yeah, yeah. So no more of do as I say, not as I do. That makes sense. So what do you ask them then? Well, we do a session when we explore the things they can do to go the way. Now, and they come up with some things and we guide them as well. Things like, if you want people to attend the training, attend the training yourself first. Get there early and sit in the front row. What message would that send? If you want people to get the most out of the training, introduce it with enthusiasm and let people know how it has helped you or someone you know about. If you want people to do the practice, maybe doing the practice yourself isn't a bad thing to do. Or maybe even doing more practice than the suggested minimum. That would send a different message about how important the practice is. Would you also get leaders to ask questions about how people are finding the training and if there are any issues with doing the practice? So definitely, definitely. We encourage leaders to take every opportunity for a discussion and every opportunity to do a coaching event, whether it's at work or whether it's somewhere else. So practice makes perfect, not just for upgrading skills and habits to safer ones, but also to upgrade our leadership skills and habits. That's a good way of putting it and a good takeaway from today's discussion. In summary, to be effective at leading behaviour change, we need to first have a complete understanding of what drives behaviour. It's not just what we are conscious about, but also the skills and habits that drive so much of what we do from our subconscious. Then we need to have a way by which we can ask the right questions in the right way so people can change behaviour from a whole-of-brain perspective. And lastly, we need leaders to be the best role models by doing it first and doing it better. So thanks for your input today, Kerry. Thanks, Christian. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. That concludes this podcast. Thanks for joining us today. In the next few podcasts, we will answer some of the questions that have been posted on our website about the first six episodes. Hope you can join us then. 